0: when we're stepping into that leadership role is creating a space where there is no fear of repercussion or judgment, a place where people are not afraid. And that can be your cube, that can be your team, who you are in the world, whatever you're doing, you're creating a space by being authentic and being vulnerable that other people can do the same. And to me, that's the first step to leadership.
1: Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Ash Beckham, speaker, equality advocate, and author of Step Up, How to Live with Courage and Become an Everyday Leader. Her TED Talk on having hard conversations went viral, and for good reason. She articulates the universal truth of what we all go through and shows us growth is possible when you have those hard conversations. She has such a unique and compelling voice, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Ash, it is so nice to have you on the Women on the Move podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Of course, Sam. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's start off with a bit about you and your background. You've been a keynote speaker and a presenter for a long time now, talking about key topics like leadership and equality and courage. Tell us about that professional journey. How did you get to this point in your career where you're talking about and really advocating for these things? It
0: wasn't intentional. It wasn't a path I ever really... Planned on walking down. It really happened when I was living in a pretty progressive town. I was in Boulder, Colorado, and a bunch of friends of mine and, and my sister started to have kids. So I had all kids, I didn't have kids yet at that point. And I had all these kids in my life, and we had this amazing relationship. And again, I lived in this place that was open, but I knew that they would run into challenges having somebody so close to them be LGBTQ. And so I thought at one point, I think the way I was in the world was enough for advocacy. didn't see myself as somebody being in marches and holding posters. It was more of a grassroots getting to know people thing for me, but I knew I had to do something more wanting to give those kids the tools and not bear the responsibility of having to advocate on my behalf and really kind of taking a step in that direction. So that was the start and found public speaking. There's a really great community of that where I was. And so I did an Ignite talk, which led to a TED talk. And then all of a sudden, The ball was rolling. You couldn't get the toothpaste back in the tube at that point.
1: And that TED Talk was a really big ball that you got rolling. It was called Coming Out of Your Closet, and it went viral, and it is really incredible. I just loved watching this. I was really struck in the conversation that you had about conversations, the need to have hard conversations, that you almost framed it out as less about the actual content matter itself coming out of the closet but that we all have really hard things that we have to tell people about. And that is a universal truth. And why can't we find community and empathy in that? I think that is so powerful. So tell us about that. How did you even get to that part where you distilled that message down to such a clear and compelling one?
0: I felt really like, I feel like when you come in that way, and when I started to do public speaking, when it was personal, right, when like I, I was the message, the message and the messenger, it felt really important to be authentic. I feel like we have this reaction of like, they just don't understand me. And, and I feel like the question is, well, are you bringing your full self? Like, are you telling the whole story? When you do that, it, it makes it so much more compelling. And for me personally, I knew that I was going to have to bring that fully. And I feel like we're so divisive and we talk about things that get thorny or that we're uncomfortable talking about. Is it Who has it harder? Is it harder for me? Is it downplay our struggles or... Overplay our struggles relative to somebody else. And I think that just like you said, empathy is so key in that and our ability to connect is based on our ability to relate. And I think we can get into the nitty gritty of the more difficult parts of the conversation. If we start from a place of trust. And really establishing that from the beginning. And so I think going on that journey really allowed me to have an understanding of finding those commonalities that we're not that different. And it's okay to laugh at these situations and laugh at ourselves and really find that way. You know, in the pit of your stomach when you're dreading having a conversation. To me, it doesn't really matter what that conversation's about. Again, like we can get into the nuance of that as we establish trust, but to relate on that idea of knowing that pit of your stomach feeling, that we can then start to build that bridge.
1: I thought that was so unique, the way you brought it to that place, that I think a lot of people can certainly relate to a conversation about describing your sexual orientation, for sure. But then you brought it to a next level where everyone can relate to that pit in the stomach. There's no question What was the feedback that you got from that? What was the response as this went viral and captured so many people's imaginations? What came back to you in the form of the enlightenment that people got?
0: I feel like it always runs the gamut. I feel like the comment section of YouTube videos is sometimes a tough place to be. I feel like as an LGBTQ person or somebody who's marginalized or in the minority in any capacity, you kind of get to the point where you feel like you have to defend yourself and it was amazing to not have to do that so like for the first time in my life, which was incredible, right? So I think that was part of it. A lot of people just really related the idea that they just didn't have the words to describe that feeling or, well, now I know what it's like. Sure. It was just this point of connection for so many people. It was so simple. There's no guilt or context you really need to know. If you're willing to know yourself and kind of dive into those vulnerabilities, then you can be part of the conversation. And I feel like that, for a lot of people, gave them permission to really step step in and be part of it and feel like they had a place, even if it was a place of curiosity, a place of learning more, a place of diving in, they felt safe to have that conversation. And again, to have that share of, I don't know what it's like to do that, but I've had to do this. I get it.
1: Was there a change for you in your life kind of pre and post that talk where you had new opportunities or now you realize you were on a different trajectory with your public speaking and your career?
0: The beauty of the internet is that it all happens so quickly. I mean, I remember I got an email from a friend of mine who was at that point with Upworthy.com and he said, hey, it's going to post and you're going to get some pretty significant people on social media that are going to repost it. Like, just be ready. And I was like, I don't know what that means. I was really on social media and just to be prepared for that in a real way. And I think so many of us, we question the validity of our message in that way of do I really have something to say? If the point of connection is commonality, then is my story actually that different? Like, who am I to say that? They think that there's a lot of that. So there was some imposter syndrome, Of course, we are the expert in our own lives. And I think a lot of us, especially when we step into leadership, we really downplay the impact of that, that we are an expert in what we've been through and what we face and what we've overcome. But it also seems second nature to us. So the expert seems to kind of oversell it a little bit. So I went through a phase where it was kind of like, oh, shucks, who me? And then all of a sudden there was this expectation of, "Okay, like, where are you in the DEI space? What are your positions on intersectionality? How broad is your lens? Like, If you're going to do this, do it and own that expertise, own that unique view. I think that was the shift for me as I got through six months of speaking at organizations and conferences and universities that were calling and wanted this unique perspective. And I really needed to own the impact it could have. And that was something i had to kind of come to terms with myself which was unique for me i hadn't really been in that space before but i think so many of us can do that and i feel like i've used that in future experiences i've always want to be nervous i never want to go into a presentation or in a call like this and not have those feelings in the pit of my stomach i'm either arrogant or apathetic i don't think that goes away I think we master and really get in relationship with ourselves around what that feels like. And then you know you're doing a good thing. You know you're pushing your limits. To me, I have a completely different relationship with that feeling now, but I think you have to go through it to really understand it.
1: That's so interesting to me. I mean, many people are terrified of public speaking to begin with, and now you're saying you do it, you do it for a living, and you're still nervous about doing it. So many people might think, oh no, how am I ever gonna get there? So to say more about that. You still experience some sort of fear or nervousness or anxiety, but push through it anyway and know that that's part of a good thing? That's a huge piece of courage, right? Courage is never the
0: absence of fear same way that you just have a different threshold and a different ability to deal with it when you feel it. And in the same way that first responders, they're running into situations that some of us intentionally run in the opposite direction of. It doesn't mean they're not scared. They should be. They take the seriousness of the situation very clearly. And that's not to say that public speaking is like running into a burning building, but threats perceived or real have the same chemical reaction inside of us. When you know that you're having that feeling, to me now, it's changing the relationship with the feeling. It's not feeling that feeling and running. It's a continued exposure. I used to do this thing, which is so wild that anytime I would do a talk, especially in the beginning, about six to eight words in, my voice would go out and I would lose a word or two and it would come back. And that was kind of like my trigger of like, okay, now I'm rolling. Like I had to get through that. And eventually that went away. The talks that I've done have gone well. I feel like I need to knock on something. So many of us, especially when we're in leadership positions or when we're making hard professional decisions, you have to trust your gut. And to trust it, you have to know it, right? You have to listen to it. You can't be afraid of it. And so how do you develop that relationship on your own?
1: Ash, how do you think about expanding your business, so to speak, becoming an advocate and an expert in new areas? You mentioned about getting into this space and really owning this and moving it forward. How do you think about the next few things that you always want to be talking about and working on?
0: I think part of it for me, I started in the LGBTQ space. Obviously that was the root of the talk and my area of expertise, my life experience was all there. When you're finding those commonalities and when you're looking at diversity, you have to be looking at it with curiosity, right? That the message was broader than just that. But if it is the universal truth, that we have this responsibility to really dial in and find that truth, to find that connection and help other people see it. That's what it was for me. So there's a curiosity. And I think that that brought a new level of imposter syndrome. Here I am as a white, cisgendered, able-bodied, albeit lesbian can I speak about that space? Do I have standing in that space? And I think the way that we do that is by educating ourselves by being curious, to know what we don't know, and really understand what allyship looks like for somebody else. Because what I want from an ally can be very different from what other people want. So again, it's that balance of confidence and humility and willingness to be curious and to dive deeper. You need all of the parts to really be the unique and authentic leader that all of us want to be. But we have to get in touch with some of those non-traditional leadership skills, I think, to really own this space.
1: So you moved into leadership as really a topic that you're talking about and pushing. So in 2020, you released the book, Step Up, How to Live with Courage and Become an Everyday Leader. So tell us about that. What inspired you to write that? And what do you mean by being an everyday leader?
0: So many of the talks were these LGBT-focused talks and it was kind of like finding your own truth and being yourself and fully embracing it, but then understanding that it was broader than that empathy is a leadership skill, that individuality is a leadership skill, courage, all of these things really fall into leadership. And I would give these talks and people would come up to me afterwards and say, Ash, I love what you had to say. When I dot, 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 I'm going to use those skills. That's the kind of leader I'm going to be. When I get my degree, when I get my promotion. When I manage the budget line, that's so big. So it was always a point to get to, to self-identify as a leader. And I would say, okay, how many people think they're a leader? And obviously, depending on who the participants were, it would vary, but 40% of the people would raise their hand. And then I would say, how many people think the person next to them is a leader? And everybody would raise their hands. So it was a self perception issue. If people didn't see themselves as leaders, we have it, it's tied to the org chart. But to me, it's so much broader than that that we can look at all of these different aspects of our lives, how we show up for our kids how we show up for our community, how we show up for work, that this authentic leadership style isn't something we do. It's who we are. Of course, we all shift and change and put on 20 other hats, but we are the same person. And I think it's getting in touch with that authenticity that really allows this. In the beginning, it's difficult because we have to really embrace that, but then it becomes easy because we're not thinking. We're just authentic. It's who we are. It's how we communicate. It's what we expect from others. It becomes our baseline.
1: You're making me think of people I see all the time at work who might not be an official people leader, but they're running projects. They're even doing an analysis. That's really great. They take that around. I see that somewhere. I want to adopt it. In my mind, they've now become a leader. And so I really love this. I think an everyday leader is very, very doable. It happens anyway, whether you realize that or not. How are people responding to that? Do you find at the end of a talk you give, people realize, wow, I actually can be a leader. I can demonstrate this or that. And I'm going to go back in and do something very specific about it. It's having that
0: conversation with yourself and embracing the responsibility that comes with that, right? Like I think a lot of times the challenge sometimes with being a leader is all that comes with that. I don't necessarily fit the mold or what does that do for my professional development to make leadership authentic to me isn't the way that I've always seen it. So is there a place for me there? But you can say like, I want to create a safe space. The reason that people aren't authentic at work is fear of repercussion or judgment. So the first thing that we can do when we're stepping into that leadership role is creating a space where there is no fear of repercussion or judgment, a place where people are not afraid. And that can be your cube, that can be your team, who you are in the world, whatever you're doing, you're creating a space by being authentic and being vulnerable that other people can do the same. And to me, that's the first step to leadership.
1: So let's talk about unconscious bias. As I think it's a very important part of the workplace discussion and who's getting ahead. How do you find people address this when it comes up in conversation? Do they acknowledge they have the bias? they have a hard time with these concepts? How do you really try to help them understand this?
0: I think the first thing is it's not your fault it isn't your fault. We all have it and it's nobody's fault. What do you do with it? It's the awareness of it. And what do you do? You're not responsible for your first thought, but your second thought and your first action, what do we do with it? And owning that it's a product of how we went through the world, how we've gotten to that point, And also to understand other people have taken a different journey when you frame it as an empathy conversation, which again, isn't agreeing with somebody else. It's just being willing to imagine what it would be like to be somebody else. Then all of a sudden, the unconscious bias conversation changes. And I think that everybody has a place in the DEI conversation. There is, in some ways, a bias that people in marginalized communities have towards straight, cisgendered, middle-aged white guy. I mean, that's the leadership conversation to me is you have CEOs and C-suite executives that understand Diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are an integral part of creating culture. If you want to be competitive in today's recruitment, retention, innovation, they get it. You have people that are entering the workforce, that that's their expectation. And then you just have this squeeze in the middle of people that says, I get it. And also, it's nothing we ever talked about. I don't have the words. I don't want to get canceled. So I'm just not going to say anything. I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to dive in. I'm not going to admit what I don't know, fudge my way through it. If we want inclusivity, we have to be willing to be inclusive, not just people that see things like the way that we do. That's like the brilliant part about hard conversations, right? And authentic conversations is that they can be difficult. And if we're open and we're honest and we're direct and we build trust, we can have those hard conversations. We can disagree and move through it or enlighten each other's perspective. I think that that's such an important part. So as we move through the space, I think people are willing to have that conversation But they have to be willing to be seen of what is it like to have that unconscious bias? What does it feel like to be the white, straight, cisgendered, able-bodied guy and everybody think you're a villain? There are so many unseen diversities, family challenges, abilities that are not seen, right? So many things you don't know about someone have to avoid making the same assumptions we don't want people to make about us. I think it's the breadth and the 360 degree nature of inclusion that really allows people to feel that this space is safe for everybody.
1: So can you think of a time where you might have had this kind of hard conversation with someone who might not have gotten it? Maybe they just felt like they were doing enough or they didn't realize they did bring a bias to something. And through the conversation with you, they really changed their views.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I feel like everybody has one outlier like an uncle or a great aunt. You always have those people in your family where you bring somebody home and you're like, oh my God, don't say anything, don't say anything. You see like your friend and that person in the kitchen having a conversation and you're just like freak out, right? How do we treat people in work? Kind of like I have a crazy uncle, George. I love him and he's nuts. How do we see people like that? And to me, to put this pressure on ourselves that we have to have the perfect 15-second soundbite that's going to land with somebody and absolutely swap their perspective is absurd. That's not how it happens. It's continuing conversations. All I want is the next time I want him to be respectful. And I think if you don't have a baseline of respect, making that transition is really challenging. So I think that's an important part. Once that exists, all I want is the next time he has a question for him to come back and ask me. How I got through coming out with my parents, we slammed a lot of doors, but we always talked through the door, having the conversation. And I think that's a huge piece of being representative of a group of people. So if you're the only woman in the room, only woman on the team, or the only person of color, the only LGBTQ person, there's a lot of pressure in that being the representative, right? To be in the token, but also how do we help people get there. We can't just expect people to figure it out on their own. I think there's some personal responsibility. People have taken that curiosity and plenty of things that you can Google, but also how do we allow people to make some mistakes when we know that they're trying? How do we have a little bit of grace and know that that's a leadership role as well? Something that people say that you can treat like when they have broccoli in their teeth. After a meeting, you're like, I don't know what you really meant, but this is kind of how it sounded. I thought you'd want to know. If you want to talk about it, let me know, right? We're having these conversations. It's a journey. I heard this really great parent had spoken and he was going with his transgender child into a state representative's office to talk about trans rights. And they were with somebody who worked with the community and did some policy work. And they were so nervous. And This kid was like 15 years old going in to talk to his state senator. And the person who was with him, the advocate had said, you don't have to get him to change his mind. You just have to get him to question the certainty of his position slightly. That's all you have to do. And if that's your bar, I'm not saying your way's wrong. I'm just saying there might be another way. Then all of a sudden we're building relationship. I'm not telling you how it is. There's no finger wagging, but we're doing, this is a journey we're doing together. You want to come with me,
1: right? That's a completely different lens. And it really takes the pressure off. I'm really struck by how you talked about talking to your parents. There were a lot of slammed doors, but you kept talking through the doors. I just love that imagery and what the reality of the situation was that you kept talking. I think we're so afraid of the door slamming and thinking that that's the end of the conversation and someone's going to hold a grudge or be mad at you when it's really just a part of a conversation. But that anticipation might be the worst part of it. You've talked about yourself as an accidental advocate, which I find so interesting. Tell us more. Like, what do you mean by that? And now that you're really in it and committed to this, hopefully you've dropped the accidental part.
0: Well, that's kind of what it was in the beginning. I wasn't expecting to do that. and I think I saw advocates were kind of legal policy people and activists were the people in the street and neither of those molds really fit me. So I just existed in my life in the way that I knew. And that's kind of how it worked. So it was accidental as there was no intention. But I will say, I, I kind of laugh at that title anymore. That was kind of in my like, oh, shucks, me? Okay, here's this TED Talk that went viral. And now it's a piece of embracing that word and maybe redefining what it looks like for me and redefining what it looks like for other people. That at the same time, advocacy, allyship, if it's going to be authentic, it has to be individualized. And it can, right? We have a responsibility to do what we can. Not necessarily more but also not less, but we can fit that sweet spot. And the only person that can tell us if we are pushing our limits, if we're getting to that point where we're uncomfortable is us. That self-reflection is just so critical. I feel like when you can attach to that uncomfortable feeling that like, oh, I don't know, should I do this? You know, there's growth on the other side. Everything is a learning experience. And for me, my threshold is, am I nervous enough? am I uncomfortable enough? And sometimes I don't want to be, right? I don't think that every single time I have to have a conversation and be the advocate and jump in and make the scene. And that's exhausting. (laughs) If I'm going through the airport with my kids and I get misgendered, to me now, the lesson is as much for the kids as it is for me and the other person, right? Like, who do I want them to see? How do I want them to see me react in a situation? Knowing that they're going to get these conversations and I want to give them the tools, both the words and then also the self-confidence to be able to have those conversations and also be able to walk away. That this isn't something that they have to do, because I think we have to be able to regenerate. Having to step in and advocate on how necessary women are, the diversity of voices, like that gets really tired to be that person, which I think a couple things. One, we have to know what our threshold is. And B, that to me underscores the importance of allies. Every conversation that someone else can have is a conversation I don't have to have. And then there we go. And then there's connection, there's trust. And that to me, A makes me feel not alone. And also, B, gives me the rejuvenation to be able to dive in again for the harder ones.
1: Ash, I want to go back to some of the things you've written in your book, particularly some different traits of leadership, things like empathy, courage, grace. Why did you choose some of them? Or tell us about the ones you really love the most. And how did you start to think about them from a leadership perspective?
0: We think that one style of leadership fits every situation. And that just isn't the case. We have different responsibilities. We fall in different places on the org chart. Your leadership style does not exist in a vacuum. And so how do we develop a skill set that's so well-rounded that we can adapt those skills to whatever situation we're in? You know, they say, When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And to me, I think you're going to walk into a certain situation, you go in and you're leading a new team, you have a new department that's come under you and you need a healthy dose of humility to go in and say that, you know, and and not take on the information that's coming from the people that are now going to report to you. How do you want to start that conversation, right? Other times we need a tremendous amount of courage because what we're going to do is something we've never done before, right? We're kind of pushing against that fear. Other times we need empathy. So to me, it's kind of like a recipe or a tool about in this situation. I go and I assess the situation because so many times in leadership, right, it isn't this like moment of calculation. The difference between a reaction and a response. How do we take a moment to give the response we want and not react? And so to me, I need a little bit of humility, but I need to be fully individual and give my own perspective. But I also need to have some courage and a little bit of grace. We take it and we make it fit the situation. And some of us are naturally really strong at some of those traits. But to know that there are other ones that we can work on really exp- expands our ability to lead in different situations and who we can lead. We can get people moving in the right direction because we have to be able to adapt. We certainly don't want a team of everybody exactly like us. So we need to understand that nuance.
1: And I think that's a great reminder. You should not be leading all the time with the same leadership skills that the situation really demands, different capabilities, the ability to flex. I think that makes me feel a lot better that I don't always have to have the same approach to things. And by the way, I don't think that would be well received. So I love thinking about that. I'd love to also talk about authenticity, being a really authentic leader, because I think you have a very interesting way and framework of bringing that authenticity into it. So can you describe that for us?
0: Recently was certified in this practice called The Dig, which really dives into authentic communication. And the basis essentially is that you speak from three places, the head, the heart, and the core. So the facts that we think, how we feel, which is always a tough one, I think, in professional environments, and what we want is the core. And it's that idea of really speaking from all three places to be able to, to give somebody the full picture and also to elicit when we're getting information. So we could go into a meeting, we're only getting facts. We need to be able, again, in that leadership role to facilitate a broader scope of what everybody else is experiencing. What do they feel about the situation? Right. What do they want from the situation? Do we need to just scrap this project and start from the beginning? Is that what people want? In so many aspects We need that well-rounded nature. And so that can kind of become our bar that our entire team communication happens through, right? Is that we are going to give the full picture. And also we can elicit that even in people that aren't familiar with the practice, with our vendors, with our partners, with different departments, right? I know what the full picture looks like, that it involves these multitude of things. How can I ask questions to elicit those responses? So I really know, okay, this is what we're working with. This is the full picture.
1: I'd never really thought about that from a core perspective, that additional input. I think pre-pandemic, we did a lot of work, at least around here, with our head, very fact-based. Pandemic introduced a lot of that feeling. We had to be a lot more attuned to what people were going through, that core of what I want, is to me a new piece. I really like thinking about that. And I think at least for women, being able to have that perspective, giving yourself the ability to ask for things or at least state your preferences, that's really a nice component. We're kind
0: of predisposed and socialized to not say what we want. Are we gonna seem too aggressive? Are we gonna seem demanding? We even couch how we have the conversation but you have a right to say what you want. And a lot of times I think we don't know. It isn't a place that we go because it's nothing that we're conditioned, women specifically, aren't conditioned to do. And so, again, so much of this is about the self-awareness piece. How do we even have that conversation? How do I even tap into my gut? What do I want? And not only like what do I want in this project, what do I want in my career, and sitting with that is so incredibly empowering. And when people see you do that and have that conversation and that is part of what your weekly one-on-ones are with somebody that you work closely with and getting them to know, it completely opens up the conversations and how we can help each other out, how we can advocate for each other.
1: Let's talk about maybe one of the most important and hardest things to do, which is balancing your professional obligations with your parenting role as well how do you do it? How do you think about shifting back and forth? And give us some inspiration that while you can't necessarily have it all at once, you can balance it over time.
0: Hardest thing I've ever done in my life was become a parent. So I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old and they are amazing. And they're my hardest thing. I feel like you want them to have the skill set, You want them to have all the things that you've learned turning 50 this year. And so I feel like I have this wealth of knowledge. I just want to like dump in my kids, but I think so often we forget that the way we got here is the experience, right? You have to live it to learn it in so many ways. Respect and empathy and all of those things I think are super important. But I also think that you really have to have the ability, which is my hardest part right now, of letting them figure it out, right? That we set the guardrails, but we're not teaching them what to think. We're teaching them how to think and allow them to go through that process. I feel like for me, I mean, I travel a fair amount, my wife travels too, and we try to balance it out. I really try to be where I am. I feel like in the beginning I would get so caught up with not being present on my trip because I wanted to be present for the kids or being home but feeling like I had a responsibility, like it was this guilt that was pulling me in the thing I wasn't giving enough at. Being like radically present with my kids and whatever we're doing is a big one. And also then when I'm not, and they understand that, but if I'm here, I'm not on my phone, we are doing the thing that we're doing fully and also, Mama has to go work and she has to go out of town and I'll call you and we'll say goodnight and I'll leave recordings of the stories that we read and I'll be back. And when I'm back, I'm here. But when I'm gone, I'm gone. So I think that that's an important piece of it. I also think transitions are key. This is something that I learned a while ago. When I am coming back from the airport or coming back from a day at a meeting, when I hit my neighborhood, I turn everything off. Turn off my phone give myself the space and the time to make the adjustment to mentally shift from like okay what notes do I have to take what do I have to write down so I don't forget what email do I have to get back to because when I go in I'm not doing it. it's like the beauty of kids right like they don't care if you had a bad day like they lose a little bit of empathy but also at the same time they love you they just want to be with you they don't care how bad you screwed up that you're late on this deadline that you said something wrong that you didn't speak up in the meeting I feel like building in those transition times, and I do the same thing going to work. When you get used to doing it, it only takes 30 seconds. But to me, it like allows you to fully shift from one space to the other. And for me, that's been really additive. I always think of it like a comet, right? Like You come into this space and there's all these trails, and that sometimes doesn't allow us to be present in the way that we want to be.
1: I really love that thought. Thank you. That is giving us permission to get to that space and turn things off and make a clean break. Ash, it's so great to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us here. We have so much to think about and we're just so inspired by the work you're doing. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Sam. I love what you all are doing too. It's just an honor to be part of the conversation. Thanks.
1: Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ash Beckham. I appreciated her thoughts on being able to flex your leadership style using a variety of tools. And I'll be thinking about building a more authentic leadership style by leveraging my head, heart, and core. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com W-O-T-M. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.